Hello, and welcome to Rising with the Tide. This episode is part of a mini-series of episodes from our older podcast, the Lancaster University Extinction Rebellion podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the LUXR podcast. I'm Skander Mana, and with us today we have Ellie Worrell, who's a graduate of uh, Lancaster University in physics, and Professor Gordon Walker, who is a researcher at the Lancaster Environment Center, uh, re- until recently co-director of the Demand Center, the Dynamics of Energy, Mobility and Demand, and whose research interests have moved around over time, but centered around social, spatial, and normative dis- dimensions of environment, sustainability, and risk issues. Gordon, hi. 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 That's a, that's a lot Are of you? words. Thank you for yes. your <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's uh, a quite uh, an amazing career as well. Um, we've been going over your work for the past few days, and uh, there's a lot of it. <laughs> You've been very, very busy. I see. There um, is. There is now. Yeah, I'm, fi- I'm feeling quite tired after all of that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's still lots more to be done. So I hear you've been writing a book. Is that right? I have. That's right. So what is, what is the book called? Okay, the book's called Energy and Rhythm, Rhythm Analysis for a Low Carbon Future. Um, and the words and most of the words in the title are sort of fairly straightforward. Um, but there's the one word rhythm analysis, which perhaps I should start off by explaining a bit about, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so rhythm analysis, it comes from a book written by a French sociologist, social theorist called Henri Lefebvre, who worked by himself, but also with a colleague, Catherine Regulier. And um, it's a very ambitious book. Uh, it's pretty wild to read and quite difficult to read, but in, in, in its essence, it's got some really interesting things to say. And the, the claim that is made on the first page of the book is that rhythm analysis is a new science, a new field of knowledge, the analysis of rhythms with practical consequences. So it's a, you know, it's a really big claim, new science, new field of knowledge. And basically what it says is that, you know, we should think about the world, what we experience, very sort of normal everyday things um, in terms of rhythms which means it's a very sort of dynamic way of understanding um, how we live and what we live with. Um, what's, a, what's a rhythm? Well, a rhythm is in very simple terms, it's a sort of pattern of repetition, it's something that repeats, that recurs. Um, so it's, it's not something the way you just say, well, it's completely unique. It's something that's, that sort of has a reoccurrence, it comes back. And that sort of sense of things repeating and coming back and reoccurring in a very sort of normal way is very important f- in terms of how we understand the world's having a, a sort of order to it and a structure to it. If every day our lives were completely sort of random and you know, flying off all over the place, it would be a very different experience. Our, our experience is actually lots of things that sort of repeat and reoccur. So if you think about sort of what you do day to day, if we start off there, you know, you, you get up, you're awake, you go to sleep. That's a, that's a rhythm, it's a pattern of repetition, extraordinary, familiar, and we do it over and over and over and over again. Um, you know, there's obviously a bit of variation as to how long we sleep and how we get, you know, how long we're awake for, as students know very well. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a pattern. It's a very, very sort of, normal sort of sense of recurrence we eat meals on a pattern 
you know, you wash, you have a shower, maybe every day, maybe every other day, maybe once a week or whatever, but it's a, there's a sort of pattern of repetition to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you go to work, you have a daily commute, all those sorts of things, well, until the coronavirus and so on. <laughs> um, the patterns of patterns at the weekend are different to the weekdays. There's a, there's a seasonal pattern there's to, to what we do and how we do things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can think about our very sort of everyday routine, mundane lives as actually being full of various sorts of, of rhythms. Um, but what's, what I find really interesting about the book, uh, and in particular what, what they have to say about rhythms, is they say, well, don't just think about activities. We can think about rhythms right in, our, in, the, in biology as well. So it's a very sort of multidisciplinary Mm-hmm. Um, way of thinking about the world so you can go right into your own body and you think well my you know if you think about your body what it's doing right now hopefully your heart is beating um, and it's you know it's a very important fundamental rhythm which is the core of our being you know your lungs are moving um, you, there's a breathing rhythm you've got a digestive rhythm in you um, you know, when you're moving your limbs, when I'm moving my mouth to make words, it's a sort of very rhythmic thing that we're doing. So say your bodies are full of rhythms. And then if we go to a completely different scale and we go out to the universe and the cosmos, that's absolutely full of rhythms. It's full of, you know, planets spinning, moving of planets around each other and so on. And that's really, that's what gives a really sort of absolutely fundamental structure to to the world which is you know the big flows of of heat and light that come into the world which define the days that define the year and the, the, the sort of progression of the seasons and so on so they say well our lives are actually full of these rhythms it's partly what we do is how we organize ourselves in a society but it's also what our bodies are doing but it's also really fundamentally and it's always been there and it's absolutely basic to the living earth is that we are on a rotating planet and the planet goes around the sun. And, you know, there's, there's a really sort of interesting way to think about rhythms right from a really small scale. And he sort of says, go from the corpuscle to the cosmos and everything in between, which is um, it's an amazingly expansive way of thinking about things. Could you say that some of these rhythms are even interconnected in, in a sort of meta rhythmic sense like rhythms depending on rhythms completely completely i mean and you can go from the cosmos to your inside your body so if you get into chronobiology you know that increase there's a load of fascinating work in the in the sort of health and biological sciences yeah, just for our listeners chronobiology being it's a sort of time biology so it's about chronos which is to do with time and um and so there's all these sorts of things in which our bodies have a, a, a rhythm to them. Um, you know, we can think about how we get tired and how our bodies are screwed up when we, when we, when we change time zones, particularly from flying. That's a sort of disruption to the circadian rhythm. And the circadian rhythm, which is a sort of daily rhythm, is something that comes from, it comes from the universe, but it's actually embedded in how our our bodies work and you know increasingly they're finding that's right down to a cellular level they can find all these sort of timekeeping things in our bodies that are actually connected to the the, the basic rhythm of the of, so it, of, it gives of a whole new meaning cycles. to this uh, this idea of 
of you know we're creatures of habits i guess yeah i mean that habit is a big part of 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 how we live with with rhythm absolutely yeah i'd agree totally and i mean so he basically says that you know the world around us it's a massive a massive rhythms nothing is inert he makes a complete claim that you can find a rhythm in absolutely everything he talks about the rhythms of stones and <laughs> you know and buildings and all these sorts of things and so you can sort of go as far as you want with it um but how i got into this to sort of connect it through to energy is that when i was working in the demand center with a whole load of brilliant fascinating colleagues um one of the particular things that we were we were focusing on was the sort of patterns of energy demand. So the patterns of energy use. So when you look at electricity systems and you look at what are called load curves, so the sort of date, you get a very clear sense of the rhythms that are in the amount of energy that's being drawn off the electricity system. So if you think about something like peak demand, which you've probably heard of as a phenomenon. So there are certain times of day when energy use is very intense. Mm-hmm. And so there's an early morning peak, typically um, in, in, a, in, in the UK, if we look at the electricity curves, what are called load curves in the UK, there's a morning peak, there's a late afternoon and early evening peak. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's repeated. I mean, there's a bit of variation from day to day. It changes a bit at the week, weekend. It shifts a bit during the year. But you see this repeating pattern day in, day out of, in other words, a rhythm in, in the, the, the way that energy is used. So you can see that in an aggregate. So you can get these diagrams that show you this really clear sort of rhythmic repeating pattern. But where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we all have a sort of rhythmic structure to our daily life. The fact that you know, there's a pattern to how we all sort of get up at roughly the same time, that work starts at roughly the same time. And that there's certain things that are done in the in the early evening. So eating, cleaning the house, watching TV, all these sorts of things. And when you aggregate all of that up, all those sort of synchron- loosely synchronized patterns in what we do, so all of those devices that are being switched on and powered up a particular time of day, it's that that creates these big surges of, of demand on the electricity system. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into thinking about rhythm, because in order to understand, like, where do these peaks come from? Why, why are they so intense? And what can we do about those peaks? Because they're often also very carbon intensive. So when there's really strong pressure on the electricity system, it's classically been when the dirtiest source, sources of power are being used um, to power the, um, the electricity grid. So, um, you know, it's very helpful to think about rhythms as a way of actually understanding the, the, um, the, the, the patterns of demand. So that's how I sort of got into it. But from that, it became a sort of bigger thing. And that's basically what the book is about. It's about saying, well, if you use rhythm analysis and you think about energy, where can you get to? What sort of interesting things can you say about the way that we live with energy, um, historically, how that's changed, how it is now, and in particular, about how can we 
move to a lower carbon, but also a de-energized future? And how does thinking about rhythm help with any of those sorts of major and enormous and really important and urgent challenges? So that's that's, that's a a sort of introduction. Out, it's a sort of an outline of, of what it's what it's sort of all, all about. I mean, yeah. I can I can get, go into a bit more detail if you want on some of the sort of things that the book then does. I'd be interested to hear about sort of the rhythm analysis with respect to specifically the yeah decarbonizing and de-energizing and how yeah you sort of would use rhythm analysis to do such things i guess this okay. is related to a, a think piece that you did for friends of the earth um yeah the big ideas project that with the demand center uh back when it was active and uh, called de-energizing decarbonizing society making energy only do work where it is really needed um so so what does that mean to to de-energize and decarbonize society to a point where that where energy is really needed okay um that actually yeah it was a, it was a nice piece of work to do for friends of the earth it was a sort of quite an open open opportunity they said you know write something interesting about energy demand and um so what, one of the things we were trying to push in the in in the demand center and that was part of a bigger sort of funding program to try and really push the energy demand energy use policy and practice um, was to try and say, well, it's not just about decarbonizing. Um, and because you can get into this mentality, you say, well, if we just strip carbon out of everything, then we can just keep on using energy as we have done. Yeah. And there's a whole load of problems with that way of thinking. So you can look at a country like Iceland, say, and Iceland has been able to significantly decarbonize because it's using particularly geothermal resources. And it seems a sort of nirvana that we can all be aiming towards. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there's so many problems with that way of thinking um, and including how much it costs to decarbonize, how slow it will be to just go down that route. I mean, they didn't do it from one day to the other. It took uh, no. how many years? Yeah. It, took a, it took 40 years, it says, for a population of 330,000. It's yeah. very, very particular circumstances, it has to be said. Mm. It's, it's a lot more challenging in other parts of the world. And also, if you think about this globally, there's a sort of big justice question, which comes from sort of thinking about, well, you know, all right, we do need to use energy. You know, energy is, is, a, is, a, is something that actually, this is sort of technical energy, the sort of energy, the electricity and other resources in that way. Um, we do need to be able to use energy, but you know there are, there are many people in the world who don't have sufficient uh, don't have sufficient access to energy, don't use enough to actually have a good quality life. So we need to actually think about that as a sort of balancing mechanism as well. And that means if we're going to create some space for for people who are you know in, in a lot of poverty and very um, very under resourced, if you like then we actually have to do some really serious cutting down of energy consumption in the parts of the world where it's become, we've become very, very energy dependent. Um, which again is saying, well, you know, it's not just about decarbonizing our, our own sort of system. It's about creating some space, including some sort of carbon space 
but people in other parts of the world to actually bring their quality of life up to get some, you know, some, some really do there were some really fundamental problems of, of lack of access to energy. Yeah. And there's, anyway, there's a number of different dimensions to the argument as to why we should be de-energizing at the same time as decarbonizing. Mm-hmm. And that can involve all sorts of different ways of thinking, but amongst those are ways of thinking that are to do with, with, with rhythm. And I could run through a few sort of examples of that. Yeah, so this ties in well into your, your book on, on rhythms. Yeah. yeah, so the final chapter of the book, chapter seven, is, is all about um, de-energization and the way in which thinking rhythmically about the relationship about, between what we do and the energies that we, we use um, can be really quite helpful. Um, one really sort of simple example would be if we think about walking instead of driving. Mm-hmm. So what's going on there? Well, um, number one, you're, you're changing the rhythm of movement. So, you know, car use has a particular set of rhythms associated with it, which is not just about how fast you move around and, and, and so on, and the routes that you go down, but it's also about the rhythms of sort of fueling and, and about how far you travel before you then refuel and all that sort of stuff, which has to be thought about when you're um, moving to electric vehicles. But you, we just leave that to one side for the moment. But more fundamentally, you're, you're, you're using the rhythms of the body instead of the rhythms of engines. So, you know, walking is something which you then, it's a very embodied sort of rhythm. You're relying on the, the muscles of your body and your capacity to, to move and to be rhythmic and for your lungs to work and your heart to work and everything. So it's about saying, well, let's, let's, let's work with the rhythms of our bodies rather than the rhythms of these sort of mechanical beasts. Which is also about working with the energies of your body as well. So one of the things that you have to start, one of the ways you have to think about energy when you think about rhythm is how sort of physicists and, and scientists think about it, which is through thermodynamics, which is basically saying that, you know, calories are energy in the same way that coal is energy. Yeah. yeah. And that there's, you know, you can do work through calories, you can do work through your, your body in the way that you right. can do work through a coal-fired mm-hmm. you know, factory system. And it's about, well, what sort, of, what sort of work and therefore what sort of rhythms do we, do we rely on in our, in our daily lives? And obviously, I'm not saying we can go back to an entirely sort of manual, bodily-based form of existence. Yeah. <laughs> and some bodies are more able to, 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 to function than others. And we have to be very aware of all of the sort of inequalities that, that can open up if you just say, well, everybody should walk. And then, you yeah. know, obviously, if you have disabilities and so on and problems with walking, you're older and so on, then you can't do that. But certainly you can say, well, you know, where we are able to achieve what we need to achieve by moving around, using our bodies, so it's walking and cycling, using the power and the rhythm of our bodies rather than the power and the rhythms of, of, of vehicles, right. um, of, of, sort of powered vehicles, then we should be doing that. Um, you know, we can, achieve the, we can achieve pretty much the same ends, but with radically less use of energy. 
I mean, it's a sort of old story in a way, that example. Lots of people have talked about it. But one of the ways of thinking about it is certainly about this relationship between energy and rhythm. I mean, other ones we can then go into is um, to do with uh, the, way, the way that you can live with natural energy flows, which again is about this relationship between energies inside energy systems, between in, in the grid and so on, energies outside of those. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from the beginning of the planet, there have been all these energy flows running through the atmosphere, through the environment, through ecologies and so on. And that, that's obviously really fundamental to the planet existing and our, our lives with it. And part of what we've done in living different rhythmically, but also living different, differently in terms of energy, is to sort of get away from our relationship with, with, with those natural energies and with the natural rhythms of of, of, of the planet and of, ecolo of ecologies and climate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even to the obscenity of things like um, indoor ski centers in Dubai, I mean, you couldn't have a clearer example of how you're trying to define- Not just in, in Dubai, I've, uh, I've seen know. in Paris and Brussels that they're, uh, they're even closer oh. to home. All over the place, but particularly when you go into desert environments. Yeah. Desert place. environment. Well, yeah, what, what is going on here? This is like you're defying your climatic context <laughs> and, and the, the, the rhythm which says, you know, there, is, there are certain patterns to where skiing makes sense and where it, where it doesn't. And you're doing it by vast amounts of, of energy to try and mm. defy the fact that there are certain... Yeah, sort of I guess it's this idea of, of man having control over nature, having achieved control over nature um through technology in a in a sort of um it, it, it's kind of the the discourse that i hear from sort of tech um tech obsessed kind of people that um anything is possible now that we've we've gained control over nature but but you know but but maybe that has some negative impacts and maybe like you're saying, maybe working within nature, understanding that we're part of nature, understanding that we're part of a climatic context, is actually important to to control nature in a in a in a way that doesn't harm it. Yeah, I mean, broad, broadly, uh, I I would agree. I mean, it's about how how te technology is deployed to what ends. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are some fantastic technologies that do try and work with um, with natural flows. I mean, a lot of the renewable technologies are fundamentally about doing that. You know, it's with, with wind turbines, it's about tapping into um, the flows of and, and the rhythms of often quite chaotic rhythms, but they are rhythms of, of, of movement that are already in the atmosphere and, and drawing, you know, converting those into through thermodynamic relationships into, into electricity that we can then use in other ways. And actually, that's an important part of um, less. Well, there are lessons certainly to be learned from people who do off-grid living um, mm -hmm. there. And when you, you know, in some really interesting research that I've seen, where people have done intensive sort of studies of, well, how do you live in an off-grid environment? And you mm -hmm. you then do have to make the patterns of what you do when and the rhythms of what you do and how you're using energy fits with the rhythms of what energy is available. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, people talk about having having sort of darker days when they wouldn't try and run all sorts of devices and things because they know there isn't sufficient solar power to, to be able to do that. So rather yeah. than just saying, well, I have a normal pattern and I'm going to put my washing machine on when I put it on, you adapt the way that you are living to when that energy flow is available. And there are all sorts of bigger lessons there for how energy systems on a bigger scale can, can, can work. I, th I think this may sound very scary to a lot of people though, as in like kind of being subject to, to these natural laws. Um, it's, I, I feel like humanity is a bit of a control freak in a sense, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it, the, the, the trouble is that it's, it's easy to make it sound very sort of dramatic and radical. And mm -hmm. to some degree, some of this can be relatively marginal shifts away from what we're used to. I mean, to go to off-grid living is, is, you know, there's no way that we can all be doing that. And that that's a sort of universal thing. But there's, there's certain lessons in there, certain sort of principles that come from looking at how there's a relationship between the rhythms of, of, of daily life and the rhythms that are uh, and energies that are, are beyond us and you know one of the things that's that's going on it's not exactly de-energizing but one of the things going back to what i was saying earlier on with about peak demand on the electricity system what people are trying to do is to find ways to shift those peaks around to actually not just let energy use have the rhythm that it just has but to try and actually push it into other parts of the day so to push some of it into when there's lots of solar on the system so we use lots of solar energy when it's available rather than using using gas powered or or, or other other form of uh, electricity um, and you try and make the peaks less intense particularly the ones in the winter when there's there's a lot of pressure on the system and you know so it's sort of saying well you know through various forms of incentives and various various schemes can we actually you know at least in a marginal way and marginal things can make quite a big difference to electricity systems actually start to shift the relationship between um the rhythms of when we use electricity and the rhythms of when low carbon power is available to us mm -hmm. Now, a, a sort of critique that I could imagine um, of this would be, you know, the the creation of battery technology and how yeah. batteries could help us kind of uh, defeat this these cycles and actually live outside of cycles. Yeah, I mean, battery technology is has definitely has a contribution to play, and it can it can really help with if you're really aggressively going for solar and renewables and tidal as this as the source of electricity for your system then certainly battery technology can help smooth out the sort of availability of electricity mm -hmm. but they're expensive they have they have negative envir environmental yeah. um, consequences and so on they still rely so on extractive principles yeah they do and so on so you know the more that we can do things that don't require loads of enormous battery storage the better so increasingly when we when we think about energy systems we have to think about a whole load of different things so cutting down how much electricity we use um, thinking about the timing of when we're using electricity um, 
and also you know having a very sort of mixed portfolio of different generation sources so biomass mm -hmm. solar tidal wind offshore and onshore and so on um so it's a it's a very sort of it's a, it's a inherently more complicated it's more di diverse mm -hmm. but it, we have to get a bit more sophisticated than just saying well let's burn a whole load of bloody coal and keep the electricity yeah. flowing through the system so that everybody can just use as much energy as they want to whenever they want to you know we can't carry on with that mentality anymore so there's a there's a whole load of thinking which can push you towards a better way of of, of having a relationship with energy and certainly for the book i say one of the ways of doing that one of the ways to open up some of our thinking about this is to think is is, is to get into rhythms yeah. and relationships between different sorts of rhythms and so on so in terms of de-energization and decarbonization is there any and, and living within the rhythms of uh, of natural energies do you have any examples that you could give us of um of these type of things types of things that have been in, put into place and been really kind of uh tested uh, yeah um i mean I've, I've mentioned a few sort of relatively obvious things like sort of walking rather than mm -hmm. driving um there's things like drying clothes outside on a line rather than using a tumble dryer is also another interesting way of thinking about a different rhythm of drying but also using a natural energy flow rather than an artificial one and so on but on a on a different scale, something I'm quite intrigued by is how we actually set our clocks. Mm -hmm. So um, if you think about um, time zones around the world, so you know when you move around the world, you know you go into different time zones and so on. So in theory, the time zones are set so that um, you have a sort of relationship between your clock time and the time of sort of daylight. Mm -hmm. Um, so that you're not, you don't, you, don't, you don't get completely out of line, out of line with the sort of natural cycling, the natural rhythm of, of when day, daylight is coming and going. So, um, so there's an immediate way in which there's a relationship between a sort of a, a clock time, which really structures the sort of rhythms of everyday life. So you know pretty much we relate to the, the clock, mm -hmm. do things in, you know, in relation to different times and obviously timetables to do with railway systems, but also TV watching and all sorts of things aligned with clock time. So that's quite important. And there are some, some pretty crazy arrangements around the world. You know, China is on, on one time zone. Yeah. <laughs> China is enormous. And that means it means in the West end of the west side of China there's a real misalignment between at least if you if if you follow Beijing time because basically that's mm -hmm. what they've done is they've spread Beijing time across the whole country um, you get sort of crazy situations where um, you know kids are taking exams in the middle of middle of the night because you know, all the exams across the country have to be held at the same time. And it means in some parts of the country that they're completely out of, out of kilter with the natural cycling. Um, I mean, in reality, they end up living with a sort of dual time system. They have local time and then official Beijing time. But it's an example of how you, 
and that obviously has energy consequences if you're on a, in a, on a pattern where things are sort of pushed into the wrong time of the day then you're using more light you're using more heat and so on and so that's that's an example of how there are ways of actually thinking about the sort of rhythms and the relationship between natural rhythms and social rhythms and doing things that can actually help quite a bit with questions of energy consumption and so that's you know one example of clock times and energy and so on the one that's perhaps a bit more familiar to us is summertime and so you know the point where the clocks change and one of the rationales for doing that there's it's been a it's been a long-running debate about whether we should do clock shifting or not mm. and we've had different arrangements in this country there was a patch where we actually did a clock shifting by two hours not just one hour and there's been all these sorts of big debates and arguments about it. But one of the rationales is, a, is an energy saving one. And it's always been there. that This is something that can help um, cut down consumption. Particularly related to lighting, but it's also related to, to other things, particularly in winter um, as well. Um, but there's been a real pressure to sort of move away from, from that rationale. And I'm... Um, I think there's been really quite a negative thing because it's been pushed a lot on economic grounds about right. sort of the alignment between different sort of trading systems and so on. And it's an area where, where which, which is a, at a very different scale. It's a, it's a good example of how there are mm -hmm. sort of rhythmic relationships which are very relevant to how the patterns of energy use that, that, that we had. Um, right. Yeah, so there, there, there's, there's a range of examples, but in a way, to some degree, what I've done with the book is say, well, okay, here are some, here are some relatively sort of well-trod and obvious examples. Let's see if we can, having laid this out, and it's quite a complicated book, and by the end I was completely exhausted and I sort of said, well, okay, I think I've done enough. This is this is trying to do something a bit different and then you put it out there and you hope that other people will run with it and see some inspiration in there and, 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 and come up with sort of more novel and innovative ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much, you know, in the spirit of saying, well, you put something out there and you see what people make of it. Maybe they ignore it. Maybe they think it's rubbish, but if a few people get some good insights from it or a bit of inspiration from it and it makes them think differently about something, then that's, that's great. Um, yes, yeah, so I was also looking into another piece of work that you did, which was to do with well, the effects of climate change in care homes um, yeah. in the social sector. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, happy to do that. Um, it's, there is actually a, a, a little line of connection through to stuff to do with rhythm and so on, but I won't start there. I'll, um, I, might, I might get there in the end. Um, but this actually came from a PhD project that I was supervising. So it was a sort of inspiration in a way for getting me interested in it came from a student who um, wanted to do a PhD that was broadly about environmental justice. And he was struggling to find a sort of particular thing to focus on. And then I, I always distinctly remember him coming to my office one day and said, so he, he said, Gordon, I've, I've come across this stuff to do with heat, the heat wave of 2003. Because um, in 2003, there was a big heat wave that, uh, that, that, that affected uh, 
um, large area across Europe. And in terms of the number of excess deaths from that heat wave, it was 30,000 across Europe as a whole. So it was a big event with a big, big impact. I mean, it's interesting to think about that in relation to coronavirus deaths at the moment. Yeah. Mm. Um, and also one of the other, one, one of the, the things that is sort of in common with coronavirus, in fact, is that majority of those deaths were in older people. Because in, in heat waves, it's older people who are most vulnerable to the, the consequences of, of heat for a range of reasons. And that was the sort of, there's a basic physiological thing, which means your bodies don't thermoregulate as well. Actually, the rhythms of your body don't adapt as well to the heat load, to the energy load on it. So they get a connection to rhythm and energy straight away. Um, but what, what, what um, this is Sam Brown, the PhD student, what he'd identified was that when you looked in the UK, where there are about 2000 excess deaths during the heat wave, you could look, they collected data on where people were, the sort of location of death. Um, and and they had the sort of percentage increase above what would be normal for the time of year um, for different locations. And the, the location where the percentage increase was highest was in care homes. And the basic question he said, well, this, this seems odd, doesn't it? And I said, it does. And he said, well, what's the explanation? And I said, I don't know. I don't think anybody properly knows what the explanation is. So that, was, that became his PhD question which for him was a question of justice because it's about, it's about who suffers from the consequences of climate change. And we could think about that globally, clearly, and there's a lot of um, very clear evidence that it's vulnerable, poor in other parts of the world who are, who are most going to be affected by climate change. But when, if we bring it closer to home, when we think about heat waves, it's older people who are going to be predominantly affected. And that's a quick, you know, we should be looking after older people. I'm now becoming an older person myself. I think we should be looking after <laughs> people in their older age. And we would all, I think, identify that in terms of our grandparents and our older relatives and so on. Yeah. And the, you know, care homes, it's in the, it's in the, it's in the name. They should yeah, you, be taken think care of. Care homes would be at the forefront of this. <laughs> You would. You'd think that's where people could be protected. I mean, you don't have to die. It, it's not. It's not. And it. Yeah, it's not. It's not a heat stroke, which is often how the media mm -hmm. presents the danger of of heat. It's something that is a is a more basic stress on your body, which then puts stress on your heart and your breathing and so on, and it often exacerbates existing health conditions. There's actually no reason why anybody should die from it being hot outside. Hmm. Um, and certainly there's no reason why anybody should die from a heat wave in a care home. Um, so anyway, his PhD was the sort of starting point and he did a really nice, nice piece of research. Um, and we got a paper out of that as well. And then I had an opportunity to work with some colleagues at a later stage on the same topic in essence. Um, mm -hmm. So this was funded through the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. It's a charitable research funder. And they had this program that was all about climate change and social justice. So it was a really nice program, a whole range of sort of small projects that they were funding, looking in the UK at the relationship between climate change and inequalities um, and justice questions. And um, 
so this this project again we were in in the part of the project we were focused on it was to do with care homes and um there was there was a mix of sort of different things going on there were there were some modelers who were looking at sort of predicting overheating in in care homes like mm -hmm. raising in indoor temperatures under different climate change scenarios and how bad it could get they were yeah. doing monitoring in care homes in the present day to see how much they were getting up to sort of elevated right. temperatures and then the research that we were doing was more talking to the managers of the care homes the staff in the in the care homes and some residents mm -hmm. to sort of under to look at how they understood the risks of heat waves how much they were aware of them how much they were responding to them and so on mm -hmm. and we you know we found some really really sort of crucial problems but one of the one of the most intriguing and one of the most fundamental which ran through everything was that in the uk we have a sort of culture of being very focused on being cold um and it's a very sort of per pervasive thing that our orientation is that cold is bad cold is dangerous heat is good mm -hmm. warmth is lovely the summer is lovely more sun more warmth it's all good so it's a really basic sort of normative association and right. particularly in older people there's this sort of whole thing about keeping older people warm you know make sure you've got plenty of clothes on tucking yourself up in a blanket lots of cups cups of tea and so on and care homes are fantastic at keeping older people warm brilliant at it mm -hmm. um you don't die of fuel poverty if you're in a care home yeah. But the, the ir irony of it was this, this really great focus on keeping people, older people safe from the cold becomes a real problem in a heat wave because you're not adapting, you're not, you're not aware in any, to any to the same degree of the risks that there can be of, of your residents becoming too hot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were finding that in the summer they still had heating systems on. So they were still heating the home in, in right. the summer. There was very little change to sort of regimes of, of, of helping people get dressed. Very little change to the patterns of sort of providing hot drinks, and mm -hmm. food and so on. So the system had a very, you know, connect to rhythm again now. It sort of becomes mm -hmm. obsessive. Care homes are run on a very sort of rhythmic structure. So there's a certain pattern to how everything is done. The things are done in a you know very ordered and very organized way mm -hmm. just to be able to cope in in very demanding situations the question is does that rhythm change as the as the thermal environment change and the research was finding that it wasn't there wasn't there wasn't that moment where people were saying okay we're going into a heat wave mm -hmm. and there are there are heat wave alert systems as guidance for care homes that exist but there just wasn't that sense of, okay, we're going into a, a heat wave. We need to do things differently. This is an emergency. Right. We need okay. to protect our residents. Certain of our residents are going to be particularly vulnerable with dementia, with particular health conditions and so on. And you can completely understand why it was like that. And, you know, it's partly to do with the whole neglect of the care system that we've is really being exposed with, with COVID-19 now i mean absolutely yeah. appalling things going on and it's a lot to do with the fact that we've not sorted out how we finance our care system the the, the people that work in the care homes really poorly paid incredibly mm -hmm. difficult mm -hmm. job and all that stuff yeah. it's all part of the background 
but actually becomes part of the story of climate change and vulnerability to climate change in this country. Mm -hmm. And um, so for me, it was, it was, you know, it was really quite important research. At the time, my mum was in a care home and um, it, it, it sort of felt quite personal. Yeah, some yeah, of imagine. the research that we were doing. Well, I have to say what, what I love about the, your research in particular is, is, you know, and this ties to um, our previous episode that we had with David Tyfield. Um, it seems like it's very um, frene frenetic research, if I'm saying that right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great deal of phrenesis in this, which uh, we talked about with David, which is oh, you're uh, right. yes, uh, yes, learned wisdom, word. sort of. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that about your research, because I think you not only look at the data and such, but also the context in which that data um, comes up. So, so the cultural yeah. context and, and such. And I think that's such an important methodology that, that not that many people seem to, to do. So I have to say, I really appreciate yeah. that the you've done this yeah. in that sense. Um, is there, can you tell us if there's anything that came out of this? Like, did you manage to kind of propose as policy or... Yeah, I mean, we, we, we did, we had, I mean, we, nowadays, when you're doing research, then there's a lot of emphasis on trying to make it have practical impact. And Joseph Rowntree Foundation that funded it, very oriented to that, and they made a real push on communications and dialogue with people and so on. And we did manage to get some new guidance produced by, um, I think it was Public Health England, yes, I think it was, um, directly for the frontline staff in care homes as a sort of checklist of things that they should be doing and they should be aware of and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, was, that was great and it, it was informed by our research. What I'm, and certainly there's been, I couldn't say it's just to do with our research, but there is now a lot more focus on trying to understand some of the sort of technical side of overheating in the UK, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of build, a lot of our buildings are again designed to deal with the cold and not to deal with with, with hot conditions. So there's the it's a sort of complex problem. It's made up of lots of different bits. It's partly to do with buildings mm -hmm. um, and heating systems and technical systems and ventilation systems, but it's also to do with how how carers work in the in in the homes. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, there's a lot more attention going on into overheating now. And my, I mean, I remember the challenge that, that I set in, in one of, because I was feeling a bit pushy at, at this event that we had where we were talking with various stakeholders about the research. I said, well, look, the target should be next time we have a significant um, heat wave in the UK to have no care home deaths, no excess deaths in care homes at mm -hmm. all. You know, at a simplistic level, you can say these, as we said earlier on, these are caring environments. People can be protected. Yeah. If we can get the right systems and the right responsiveness in place, mm. there's no reason why we can't achieve that. And that should be the ultimate goal. Mm. The only problem is we don't want to achieve it by putting in lots of air conditioning into, into care homes, which is one of these, <laughs> one of these really, di di you know, it's a real dilemma there around heat waves generally not just in care, care homes that we see this threat from climate change mm -hmm. and in some countries they they sort of say well the problem is there's not enough air conditioning um, if everybody had air conditioning then everything would be all right but then if your air conditioning is is fossil fuel powered mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, then you know you've got this real dilemma, yeah. sort of circular relationship. Could we say? Could we say though that I mean, if uh, let's say if um, these air conditioners do, for example, help or are an integral part of uh, of solving the problem, could we say that that constitutes a little bit of the base necessity of energy de- uh, use? Yeah, it, it, it's a yeah that gets into really interesting territory as well because um, but yeah I think that argument can be made. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've found challenging as a researcher is coming from the UK. Again, I had this whole culture of cold associated with me. So whenever I talked about fuel poverty or energy poverty, it was always about you know people being too cold, mm-hmm. and access to affordable warmth was the phrase I was using. You go into other parts of the world and they say, what you what you're talking about? It's all about how do people keep cool, not how yeah. do they keep warm. And they say, well, just as you, you were talking to us about a fundamental right to warmth, in other parts of the world, they can talk about a fundamental right mm-hmm. to, to, to being cool. To yeah. be, to being, and, and therefore, yeah, when you start to think about, you know, the basic core essential needs, Mm-hmm. then you can say yeah the right to call should exist it's about then how do you achieve yeah. that i feel like if we're coming at it from our own cultural um bias of, of cold is bad or something then yeah. you know we can look at countries like uh, for example tunisia where, where my my dad comes from and yeah. and where my a lot of my family is based um you know when i go and visit in tunisia uh, the warmth i think for english people maybe or even for europeans if you think of a, a really warm country and you think you could think, oh man, they don't need any cooling or anything like warm is nice. Like it's a good thing. It, it's, yeah. it can't be a bad thing, but you go to Tunisia and you, in the middle of summer it's 50 degrees inside yeah, the houses. Completely. People are just lying down doing nothing. Like when I go visit, yeah. I can't do anything most days. I just mm-hmm. lie down and just wish I had air conditioner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. But one of the one of the things there is going back to our earlier themes around de-energization is mm-hmm. can you how much can you do cooling without using lots of energy? Yeah. And at least there are there are some ways in which you can do natural ventilation, natural cooling, if you get the buildings designed right. And the problem is a lot of contemporary buildings are appalling in terms of anything to do with airflow and natural ventilation and so on. Right. You can do a certain amount at least by uh, and, and obviously you know traditionally um including in desert environments there were all all sorts of ways of living with that sort of level of heat in a way that it didn't over overwhelm you and to do with how you dressed at the times of day that you did things again rhythms um what you ate and you drank um and the sorts of dwellings that you were in but when we've gone into um, particularly more city environments, modern city environments, a lot of that sort of traditional knowledge has just disappeared and concrete yeah. blocks are stuck up that don't have all that um, learning as part of them. So in the sense, what, you're, what your theories are advocating for in the sense is, is kind of a return to, to those older ways in terms of just learning. I mean, I'm not talking about like purely going to, you know, an anarcho-primitivist state or whatever, but no. um, just uh, <laughs> in terms of learning from our, our past to kind of inform the future. Yeah, just to, absolutely. I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, but, but not shying away from the fact that we can, we can, part of that learning can be about technology, quite mm. advanced technology. And 
know, one of the things there is how can you get an alignment between when you have a demand for for air conditioning and when you have a good good generation of electricity from solar panels if you get those rhythms right if the rhythm of your demand for air cooling is similar to the rhythm of the generation of electricity from solar then you've got a less problematic um, use of technology than if all that air conditioning is being powered off of coal or, or gas, or I would add nuclear as well, because I see nuclear as being deeply problematic. Right, yeah. Um, but I know that divides opinion a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we can we can talk a little bit about that, because um, some, something that we've talked a lot about on the show has been um, the intrinsic links to extractive behaviors that renewable yeah. energies actually have. Um, so with Alexander Dunlap and Andrea Brock, we talked a lot about this, about how um, solar panels, uh, wind turbines, they rely a lot on extractive um, behaviors like mining everything from cobalt to uh, steel, which requires coal, um, and then, you know, then end up in e-waste uh, sites in, in Ghana, for example, where people get much much higher uh amounts of um of cancers of birth defects etc so so i think uh, when i was reading your your papers what really stood out to me was the need for de-energization um mm. and and that's something that i've heard as well because you know when when we were talking to alexander for example and he was telling us renewables are not the answer basically that's that's what his bottom line was in his research and and we just kept thinking, okay, but well, what is the answer yeah. then? And his general idea was, well, there needs to be a de-energization. Like we need to stop using so much energy. And I, w I guess my, my question now is more, um, have you seen this happen in the UK, for example? Have, have the UK really been de-energizing? Has our demand gone down or are we kind of doing what the rebound effect calls for, which is... Um, whenever things get more efficient, we tend to just use more of it. Um, actually, uh, it, uh, some of our energy consumption has been going down. Um, and particularly in the domestic sector, um, particularly associated with electricity in particular, um, some of that is to do with efficiency, uh, particularly of light bulbs. Um, but I don't think entirely. I don't think we actually fully understand. I think we have certain assumptions about why we are seeing some reductions in, in energy consumption. Whether we have really good understanding of where that comes from, I'm not so sure. But it may just be mm -hmm. that I haven't read enough. Um, but I don't think that some of, and, and some of what has been happened in terms of de-energization has just been a consequence of recession and yeah. austerity. And, you know, Russia achieved amazing de-energization mm -hmm. at the time of the sort of collapse of the, of the Soviet Union. So on, just because so much industry, heavy industry shut down. Mm -hmm. Very brutal, very, very brutal way to do de-energization de and, and, cu and cutting carbon emissions and so on. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not a good, ordered, managed way of doing it. Um, so it... You know, we do have some examples of some really quite striking de-energizations, but it's a it's a question of, of of why they happened and what the consequences of that are. And also, if it is enough, I guess as well. Yeah, but there's no doubt that where 
I wouldn't say that in the UK we've taken that on as a basic principle. Mm -hmm. um, it's been very sort of marginal and most of the mentality has been that energy demand is good. Yeah. So one of the fundamental things we have to get away from, and this is something that media and politicians are very guilty of, is seeing a rising energy demand as an indicator of sort of strength mm -hmm. and of wealth and of power and of performance. And, you know, it's, it's a very sort of casual sort of throwaway sort of way of thinking and reasoning, but it's very prevalent, particularly in the like the business press and, and economic commentators. You know, they, they use all sorts of indicators, which are really problematic. One is, you know, energy demand. Another one would be car sales, you know, that if car sales are, are going down, it's bad. If they're going up, it's good. Yeah. And these sort of really sort of basic men orientations, these little things actually start, they really add up into mm. a way of thinking about our relationship with the use, the use of energy. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a long way to go to actually get de-energization taken at all seriously. Um, and at the end of that Friends of the Earth paper, I sort of had a, a few suggestions. Um, one was to do with this challenging of this way of talking about energy demand um, and making reducing demand a good thing and increasing a bad thing mm -hmm. really powerfully. Another one was to, was to um, develop the idea of this, what's called the energy hierarchy and yeah um, i really like that um i remember yeah. i remember that from the paper that struck out stood out to me yeah it's a sort of simple idea in a way and it comes from the waste field where this notion of the waste hierarchy has been quite sort of powerful and become quite normal the idea that you know you you firstly reuse then you recycle then you recover and then dispose so you always go through, you, there's a priority. So firstly, you say, can we reuse it? Mm -hmm. Secondly, can we, can we recycle it? Can we recover it? And only after you've gone through all those things, do you then dispose? Right. Uh, you know, it's a simple thing to say, well, these, these, these are where, this is where you start. The energy hierarchy would, would in, a way, in a similar way, say, well, first of all, we have to say, do we need to use energy at all? Do we, and by, what I mean by there is sort of, energy from the energy system. Mm -hmm. So can we achieve what we need to achieve without the use of energy? Can we use, you know, natural ventilation? Or, yeah. yeah, our bodies, natural ventilation, so on and so forth. Then it's about absolutely minimizing how much energy that you're, you're, you're then using to achieve whatever you're trying to achieve. Then you're maximizing the efficiency of the energy that you do use. And then, you know, so you go down through the hierarchy, but the starting point is always, do we need to use energy at all? Do, can we rely on things other than technically produced energy with all the problems that come from that? I mean, <clears throat> as you said, you know, a lot of our orientation is towards the carbon, but also we can't just say, well, if, it's, if carbon is taken out of the system, then all our problems go away. Yeah. I wouldn't go as far as saying that renewables are not the solution i think they're part of the solution mm -hmm. um yeah i think i think uh, just to contextualize yeah to contextualize alexander's comments i don't think he was saying they're <clears> not <throat> at all the solution i think it's more we shouldn't rely on it simply just on its own as a solution yeah, yeah um, I, I would absolutely agree with that i i guess um 
I, I just want to ask as well about, about the use of that language. So within political spheres, within uh, journal kind of newspaper spheres, um, this idea that I've seen thrown around of, for example, biofuels and natural gas, right? This is kind of the power of language. Um, natural gas, it seems quite a lot of people see it as, as a renewable thing or as a positively like green thing. And same thing with biofuels when really, I mean, biofuels a lot of the time just means, you know, burned, burned wood. <laughs> yeah. That's what a lot of it yeah. is. Um, so the, there seems to be, and, and actually I was just reading a, a carbon brief um, paper today uh, mm-hmm. from carbonbrief.org. Um, and they were talking about the share of renewables in the UK and uh, biofuels made up about a third of it. And they still counted it as renewable energy when when in reality the you know we have to look at where that biofuel comes from if it's yeah if it's truly kind of done in a in a sustainable way or not and oftentimes it seems not to so so i think yeah. there seems to be a, a huge um power to the terms we use and that hierarchy that you're talking about seems like a good way to to kind of make real advances without being without being, um, what's the word, without being influenced by other things such as biofuels or natural gas. Yeah, yeah, I I mean, language always matters. And um, yeah, I hadn't particularly heard that thing about natural gas, but it makes complete sense that as soon as you, I mean, the the only reason it was ever used was because you used to have this thing called town gas, which was gas that was manufactured in the UK from coal, in fact. And then the the transition to natural gas was the idea that this stuff was out there in the in in nature already, and we were tapping into it from the north North Sea and so on. So it was yeah. just a term that was used. But over over the years, it's just anything with natural attached to it then has all these other connotations. Yeah, and I I would agree completely about biofuels. There, it's a very crude category that includes all sorts of different sorts of biofuels and different. Um, delivery systems and sourcing systems and so on and so you have to be really careful in how you how you think about biofuels mm-hmm. in relation to um, um, sustainability and so on and and also there's a bit about biofuels in my book oh, so right, okay. they, yeah they're sure. also, um, they're also quite in, they're also quite interesting rhythmically um, because they have a whole set of sort of rhythmic coordinations you need to do to, to, to actually get them to work into the energy system. But anyway, okay. that's just a, an yeah, aside, yeah. really. Sort of going back to de-energizing stuff, you give a few examples of how we can de-energize, but I was just sort of wondering, you know, if an individual came up to you and said, you know, I want to sort of start de-energizing my life, what would you tell them or advise that they would do? <laughs> Yeah, um, I think there are things like saying, you know, hang your washing out, get rid of your mm. tumble dryer, um, mm. get rid of the dishwasher, you know, mm. various things like this. Mm. There, there are sort of fairly obvious and simple ways of saying, well, don't be as dependent on technology in, in a way. Um, Recognise you can do things in other ways. Mm. Um, you know, don't, don't drive your car so much. I mean, these are all, I mean, it's all sort of obvious stuff, but... Um, but to some degree, um, we can't just think about individuals. So there is a certain power in people taking on you know, an idea and a principle and trying to follow it through into their lives. But there's a lot it, which is sort of um, 
difficult for us to do without having all sorts of infrastructures and systems in place to help us do it. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's important not to just always ind individualize it and say it's up yeah, to each, each individual person. Yeah. You know? yeah, if I want to go from my house to Brussels, it's either a, a 25 minute drive or two buses and two trains and it'll take me about two and a half hours on some Completely. days. So it's... Completely. <laughs> I mean, that was actually one of the things that Demand Centre was particularly focused on was pushing against an idea that that, any, that reducing energy demand was just about individuals doing the right mm, thing. Absolutely. We were really trying to say that, you know, there's a whole load of things to do with policy, to do with what governments are doing, what businesses are doing, which make an enormous difference to mm. that how we, on an everyday level, live with, with um, energy. And in another bit of writing, I don't, I didn't send this to you, but I sort of got into the idea of using the idea of the the right to live sustainably, which I, I quite, I quite liked that because often with the rights, we're talking about you know the right to food or the right to mm -hmm. housing and so on, but the actual say, well, I have a right to live sustainably, and if you start yeah. from that position, you say, okay, so what do, what needs to be done? to enable me to realize that right mm -hmm. or the right to the sustainable city would be another way of, of, of talking mm. about this to say it's not just it's, there's a whole load of stuff about the right to the city out there but i would say the right to the same city therefore I, I you know i have a right to live in this city in a sustainable way and systems need to be in a place that enable me to exercise that right mm -hmm. and I, I quite like that way of thinking as a sort of way of demanding something from our governments and say you know this is this is what we this is what we need yeah. we need the, all these sustainable infrastructures we need charging points we need this we need that in order to enable i mean obviously people then have to be prepared to exercise that right and to to go through with it but to some degree people can be pushed in that direction by these systems being available mm. yeah you think about recycling and for a long time in the UK they were struggling to get people to take recycling seriously it was a lot a lot it we were saying you know you should recycle you should recycle um, you should do your bit you know and you should collect all your waste and you should take it to the recycling sites um, which for a lot of people wasn't a practical thing to do it was difficult it was difficult to fit it into the rhythms of everyday life and so on and oh god I mentioned rhythm again then really <laughs> but anyway um the thing that really started to shift our recycling rates in, in the uk was when we started to put in proper systems to support people yeah so all the collection systems and so on and you know the the this curbside collection systems and the infrastructure you know the wheelie bins and all that sort of stuff once we once we started to do that in other words we gave peter we started to help people realize the right to recycle if you thought about it like that mm -hmm then all sorts of things started to happen. I mean, it's not perfect and some of those things have disappeared. So in mm -hmm. Lancaster, we can't, we can't, um, we don't have our organic waste collected at the minute. Yeah. Which I think is really bad. And, but if that system was in place, all of a sudden people would be recycling more oh, of their organic 100%. waste. 100%. We've been asking as a, as a group, as LUXR, we've been asking for compost bins for ages. Um, yeah. And you know the university, for example, has been trialing one, but right. you know even that apparently has its technical issues, uh, infestation of rats, <laughs> uh, right. among other things. But you know just one bin, I'm not sure would be enough. Uh, but if if let's say there <laughs> there was a 
a few bins per per college let's say yeah um i know i would be you know composting constantly i mean yeah I think I think a lot of people would do, and unless you put that infrastructure in place, it's not going to happen. I think that's why one of my close friends and a, and a, a um, who's sometimes a co-host on this, uh, Johnny, always told me that you know architects are the most powerful people in the world because they determine <laughs> are not just architects but city planners, <laughs> urban planners. They are the most powerful people in the world because they determine how we live in a very uh, sort of real but stealthy way. I mean, may, maybe it used to be like that once upon a time, but city planners have, have been rather and well. It, in the UK experience, unfortunately, our planning system has got denuded of a lot of its power and business right. and development and all of that tends to be the most powerful thing. But yeah. the, I completely get the point in principle. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, another bit of work that we did, just to mention something else, was on zero carbon housing, which um, right, okay, which was uh, was looking. I mean, there's a long story behind that, but there was there was a there was a point in the UK where we had a a ten year long process of building towards the moment when all new housing developments in the UK would have to be zero carbon, right. And that was set up by the Labour government um, as they didn't say, right, it's going to happen next year. They said, right, let's take 10 years. We're going to work towards this. We're going to get lots of the relevant stakeholders together. Sorry, when was this? Mid 2000s? Um, It started off in the, yeah. And then it came through to, uh, it was meant to culminate, I think, in 2016. I can't remember my dates exactly. Mm And right at the last minute just before the actual thing came in the tory government got rid of it so under pressure from the housing industry and it would have been a really important and significant moment i mean to actually have a, you know a requirement that was really going to push the housing standards in the uk mm-hmm. um, forward which had been a problem problem for such a long time um but it was you know it was just goes back to what i said about about the power of developers and the business interests and so on they got this scrapped even though loads and loads of work have been done towards it and we've been building rubbish housing since then which is all going to have to be upgraded as a consequence of the fact that those rules yeah. didn't didn't mm. come in and it's just, and it, it, it could was, cost up more to retrofit yeah, it, will do. <laughs> it will do it was it was a short-term political decision it was outrageous i mean the, the what we were actually studying was the how the, the whole definition of what zero carbon is mm-hmm. had been gradually undermined through this process. I mean, at least it was there. But even then, you could see all this political work going on to try and denude it of its real mm-hmm. significance and power. Right. So there was a sort of lesson there, I suppose, that while we can, we can want certain things to happen, there's, there's still a lot of very powerful interests that either try and resist and if they can't do that then they try and subvert and they try and you know wheedle out of things or 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 not take the hit that they think they're going to take and and so on so you know i think planners can have power and architects can have power and a lot of architects wanted to go in the zero carbon direction you know they were really excited about it all these fun all these great green building ideas actually 
actually finally getting into mainstream building rather than just being yeah. a, you know, this sort of weird, freaky stuff. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, it didn't, it didn't come to pass. I mean, there's still a lot of good work going on. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. it seems for me that, uh, I mean, I, I don't really know too much about this in, in Belgium because I feel because I've been I've been kind of based in the UK now for, for three years. I haven't been keeping up to date with Belgian politics too much, but it seems like the UK has quite a lot of issues in terms of um, building governance. Like, you know, we, we saw with the Grenfell Tower um, yeah. that a lot of buildings are still today. I think I think I saw the other day that it was like the anniversary well, the you know, anniversary of, uh, of the Grenfell Tower. Uh, of the Grenfell Towers are burning up, and and the uh, that a lot of buildings are still built with this material, the specific material that caused that horrendous fire. Um, so I, I feel like is this a is this kind of a systemic problem in, in England that that you know there is not too much control over buildings. I think there is a systemic problem. I've, I've followed some of the Grenfell discussions, but not in enormous detail. So I wouldn't say that I have a sort of precise knowledge of it all. But what I have picked up is, a, is, is basically a systemic problem of building regulation system having had, all, had, had a significant amount of its power stripped out of it. Um, so and and also a really sort of complicated web of relationships between different parts of, of, of organizations involved in 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 developing something like a and then and then managing a, the block of flats to the point that everybody is trying to pass responsibility nobody you know everyone was trying to get those little margins of their costs and to do the job where they would make the profit from it and everything yeah. and that in a systemic way led to a complete neglect of the fact that there were people living in these buildings who were, who were, you know, who were going to be killed, who were clearly vulnerable and at risk. Yeah. And all that knowledge was somewhere in the system, but the system didn't work in a way that, that meant that it, it had a responsible outcome for the, for the residents. And the yeah. whole saga is truly, truly appalling. It is, it is. And it continues today. I mean, there's still horror yeah. stories about people from, from Grenfell that, that are still not housed properly, the, the you know, yeah. a lot of people still living within these. And um, this ties in, I think, quite well to, you know, my my final question, because I think we're going to have to wrap it up at some point, yeah. um, about your work on risk governance, um, vulnerability and res resilience related to mm. floods. Um, so you, you worked on the whole flood project, is that right? Yes, 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 that's right. Um, so I, I, it got me quite curious this morning when okay. I was doing uh, my final bits of research. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you a little bit about this. What, what exactly did you do with the flood projects? Yeah, it was, that was an amazing project. I mean, I, I, was, um, I had a relatively small part in the project. It was as other of my colleagues within the um, Environment Centre who were leading it at the time, Rebecca Whittle and Will Mead. Oh, well, we're people. having Rebecca Whittle on in, the, in a week. Are I think, you? So. Oh, she yeah. was, she's, she's an absolutely amazing. Um, a lot of her work's right. on food now, but at yeah. the time she was doing this work on flooding. And there was, there was a big um, set of floods um, that particularly affected the north of England and Hull, which is um, a, a sort of fairly poor, deprived, city uh, out on the sort of northeast, well east, um, east Yorkshire 
area was was particularly bad affected, badly affected, and they were sort of claimed that they were sort of neglected, that nobody was sort of noticing the fact that how serious a flood it had been in Hull. And it it had particular peculiar sort of dimensions to it. Like this was a rainfall flood. It wasn't actually Hull is very vulnerable from coastal flooding and river flooding. But the thing that particularly got it in this case was just very, very, very heavy rain which is something that is associated with climate change as well. So there's a climate change relationship here. Um, and drainage systems not working and, and all that sort of stuff. But what the project was particularly doing was following people's experience after the flood. So, and that was one of the sort of titles of a number of papers and reports, it was after the flood. So when, when floods happen, there's a lot of media attention during the flood, you know, a lot of the dramatic, mm -hmm scenes of cars submerged and people canoeing around and politicians sort of going there and sort of standing in front of the floods and getting their brushes out and like bloody Boris Johnson did pretending that he's doing something constructive yeah. to do with the floods. Yeah. Um, but then the people who have been flooded are now living with those consequences for a long time afterwards and the, mm -hmm. the project was really interesting in how it was structured. So it, it tried to follow people over about an 18 month period in a very sort of collaborative way. So it was very much sort of designed involving local people. And it was quite intensive. So people had a sort of series of interviews at different times, but they're also filling out diaries on a regular basis, sort of explaining what they were dealing with and what they were encountering. And also sort of group sessions when um, they got together with other, other people. And it was really revealing how much, how complicated it is to have, to have lived with the results of flooding. Because you now we sort of somehow imagine that the flood comes in, the water goes away and everything's resolved, but it's not. You have to strip out any furniture because often the flood water is contaminated. So any furniture is touched by it, you have to be thrown right. away. Right. You have to rip out plaster and floorboards and so on. And in, in this flood, for a lot of homes, it was, it was really quite a sort of low level of water in, the, in their homes. But the, the consequences they then had to live with were enormous. And then they had battles with insurance companies, endless battles with insurance mm -hmm. companies and so on. And some people said, you know, the flood was nothing compared to the emotional trauma of having to try and deal with mm. the aftermath yeah. of, of trying to negotiate with with builders and with insurance companies and so on. And then quite a lot of people were, were had to go into alternative accommodation. Sometimes it was hotel rooms, so a whole family would be packed into a hotel room. Yeah. But a lot of people, and a lot of the images of, of, of Hull were of caravans that were put on people's sort of front, front yards. Yeah. So people would be living in a caravan outside their house for 12 months, 18 months. Wow. It's like, you know, a family of kids and pets and so on. Yeah. So what was coming through the diaries was was it was a was was a lot of sort of emotional trauma from all yeah. of this, and relationships falling to pieces, um, or real problems for kids in terms of carrying on mm. studying and so on. So for me, and I think what the real message was to, was to actually open up the fact that these things that maybe seem very sort of focused on a particular point of time, and then you recover. And not nothing like that. Recovery is a long, drawn-out, complicated process, really quite yeah. traumatic. 
and it makes makes me every time a flood happens makes me really sort of feel empathetic towards the people involved and realize what they're what they what they're falling into and which makes the whole sort of makes climate change impacts even in this country makes you realize how consequential they're going to be um, for for lots of people so we talked earlier on about older people in in care homes but also communities that can suffer flooding uh, are particularly at the front line of climate change here and that project really opened up how deeply, mm-hmm. deeply damaging it is to go through a flood. Even something that looks relatively minor um, can be really consequential on your life. So yeah. there you go. A little yeah. bit of water, actually, yeah. actually really powerful stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I'm guessing the, the government uh, probably just kind of lets the, the raft go in a sense after, after the flood. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that, I mean, we, we found some fantastic examples in Hull of local community groups and to some degree the city authorities doing mm-hmm. all they could to support people. But it was it was really difficult. And like I said, it was a very deprived city. So there was a lot of problems with with poverty and, and people were completely uninsured. So, right. you know, they, and even they those insured, any... I mean, I, I've had I've had experience with insurance companies myself. And, you know, I, I never understood why insurance companies are a thing. Their business is literally to to try and escape as much yes. pay in payment as possible. <laughs> it certainly is, despite everything that they say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Particularly if you're buying cheaper, cheaper insurance often it comes with very limited return if you have to claim off it. But if you go, I mean, and the other problem is flood insurance in this country can be so expensive that yeah. for a lot of people, you just can't afford to pay for it. And in a sense, why should they? Why should these people who are living on the front lines of climate change, for example, why should they have to pay for, you know, for, for this traumatic disaster that is in a sense, not really their fault. And a lot of people aren't Mm. able to move out or Mm. aren't able to escape this. Yeah. I mean, one of the, (laughs) this conversation's going in some interesting places. I didn't think we'd get to talk about (laughs) insurance, but I, I, when we were doing this work, um, I got really interested in insurance. And again, I never thought I would, you know, insurance, interesting. But what's interesting (laughs) is the principles behind insurance and how how charging systems work. So if you look at um, France, so I, this was a moment in it. I did one of these great projects where you could be in a room with people from different countries. And um, so this was another project to do with flood risk. And sometimes these these projects don't really get you anywhere and you wonder why on earth this is being funded. But this, this was a really powerful moment when I realized how different insurance works uh, how differently insurance can work in different countries so in france they have a principle of collectivity around their flood insurance Mm -hmm. so that everybody pays a bit for flood insurance um, but you only pay in proportion to the value of your house it doesn't matter where you live in france you it's not that you pay more if you live by a river and less if you live further away it's collectivized. In other words, they say there's a principle of, they describe it as a principle of solidarity. Mm-hmm. They say that we will all contribute to helping people out in the case, in, 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 after, in, in dealing with the impacts of a flood. 
So it shouldn't be that the affordability of insurance is based on, on your income. Yeah. Um, it's something that, the, that collectively we will provide. And it's a really nice example of how you can have a sort of basic sort of ideological principle that runs into something as boring as insurance. In this country, we, we you know, we've, we've done a little bit to try and address this, but traditionally we operated on a very sort of marketized um, arrangement, which is you, you just are charged more if you're more, more at risk. You know, your insurance is gonna cost you more depending upon how risky they think your location is in relation to flooding. So very individualized, very marketized, no sense of collectivity. We've sort of done a little bit to try and help people out who are, who are in the most flood prone areas and on, on low incomes, mm -hmm. but it's, it's nothing like as, we haven't gone as far as we should have done on that. Um, but what I like about things like that is you can go from something very sort of particular to do with insurance, but actually realize that underneath it, there's a, there's a sort of fundamental philosophical political principle that you can grapple. Yeah. And that's what I love doing with students to say, okay, let's, let's think about what's really an issue here and let's talk about justice principles and then let's apply them to flood insurance. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's the same by analogy, you can go out into all sorts of areas of adaptation to climate change then about mm. who should be paying, who should be bearing the, the risks and who should have responsibility for helping people to, to cope and so on. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lack of, of philosophical talk in politics. That's something I've I've seen more and more. As a, is I wish people would talk more about these principles of justice or yeah. alienation and and things like that because they're just as important to to our well-being and our, our livelihoods as you know as flood insurance is. Um, yeah. And we discuss yeah. flood insurance a lot more than we discuss, uh, let's say, alienation <laughs> from work. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, that's part of the part of the point of having an education system. Yeah, at least yeah. <laughs> at some point in people's lives, you try and get them engaged with 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 some of these big ideas. And you know, mm -hmm. it's one of the privileges of being an academia is having the opportunity to do that. For sure. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap it up. Is there okay. anything that you'd like to end on? Any sort of final words uh, for our listeners? Uh, maybe a sort of hopeful note. Um, to get us away from the, the emotional trauma of floods. <laughs> yeah, hopeful notes. Yeah, it's always good to have a hopeful note. I mean, one, one hopeful note is all the sorts of fantastic local things that are done to sort of push for change. I mean, I, change is always incremental. It always comes step by step. And it's interesting when you, when you teach for a long time, um, and you sort of become the age that I'm at, you do actually start to see change happen over your lifetime. You know, things that seemed impossible 30 years ago are now sort of more mainstream, like, you know, having walking, walk, having walking strategies. You know, the idea that a city <laughs> or a town would have a strategy for walking. One of my colleagues was pushing that back in the 1980s, and he was seen as a complete nut job. You know, people are saying, what do you mean, transport, walking? Well, what's that to do with transport engineering? But now, yeah. now it is relatively normal to have walking and cycling strategies and so on. Yeah. And, you know, he pushed and pushed and change did happen. And mm -hmm. 
along with lots of other people. And it's often hard to work out why things change. But my best, best estimation is it's, it's a bit random, but it involves lots of different points of pressure and lots of moments of realization and, and agenda setting and keeping at it. Yeah. Including stuff like unearthing what the investment uh, portfolio with, <laughs> of, of our university is. Yes. Which is a great, great bit of investigative work that oh, you've done thank you. recently. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and you know, it may get pushed back, it may not get anywhere, but it's, it might get responded to. Mm-hmm. But it's all part of this sort of gradual process of... Of course, I mean, without the people in 2014 who did the same thing, we wouldn't have even yeah. thought of it. Uh, it's yeah. only because we saw that there was an unsuccessful attempt that we picked up the torch and, and yeah. tried it our own way. Yeah, um, I, I hope it gets somewhere. As I said, I don't agree yeah. with a, an investment priority on nuclear power. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. that can we, be we, a source. Yeah. That can be a source of another discussion. Not, yes, not one to yes. Now. Um, I mean, but yeah, I think we all we all had our, our sort of different takes on on the conclusions. <laughs> um, so we tried to put in conclusions that we we're all kind of of course uh, a little yeah. bit. You know, it's it, a lot of politics. I guess is making um, compromises, unfortunately. But but I think yeah. having a discussion around our investments is already a first a good first step absolutely yeah completely yeah. I, I i agree so, so um, a lot of courage resilience and uh, keeping at it i guess is, uh, so that's is the, a little, little little bit of positivity to end yeah. On, isn't it? yeah <laughs> well professor gordon walker thank you so much for for your talk today and um well, we'll definitely keep uh in touch and and keep looking out for your for your papers and and such so yeah well, thank you thanks, so much. Thanks, thanks both of you, and it's been really, it's been a really nice discussion, uh, Ellie and Skander. So um, yeah, stay safe, and um, <laughs> we'll yeah. do. Yeah, you It'll too. Good to, good to hear more of what you're doing.